The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nate, for reading that passage of scripture for us. Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Christ Press. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, my name is Paul Lim. I serve here as a scholar in residence in addition to teaching at Vanderbilt uh, in the history of Christianity area. So um, thank you for that passage. What a powerful and convicting par- parable that is. So um, let's pray one more time and we'll look, look at God's word together. Gracious God and our glorious Heavenly Father, we thank you for inviting us to yourself so that we can be reminded of whose we are. In this covenant renewal service called worship, may your worth, the eminent and eternal worth be praised. And in so doing, may we come to our knowledge, saving knowledge of you, but also edifying knowledge of ourselves. May that happen as we look at your word, as it has been read, may that now be expounded for the edification and encouragement and empowerment of your body, the church. In your name we prayed, amen. Well, some of you might be familiar with Monty Python. Uh, They have a movie called Life of Brian. And there's a poignant scene, pungent with humor, when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. As you could perhaps imagine, there were a throng of people listening from afar. Although most were completely wrapped up with every word Jesus uttered, some had trouble hearing and thus interpreting what Jesus said. Here's a scene. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. But from where the bystanders were um, on the edge of the crowd, they couldn't quite hear. So one person said, I think he said, blessed are the cheesemakers. One person asked, what was so special about cheesemakers? A nearby person explained, well, obviously, it's not meant to be taken literally, you see. It refers to any manufacturers of dairy products. That then becomes the authoritative interpretation for that small community. You can see that in just three sentences, three and three sentences, one mishearing, one question, and one interpretation away, they were pretty far afield, considerably removed from the original intention what Jesus, of what Jesus was trying to communicate. Thus, to me, this scene from Monty Python's Life of Brian explains the desperate need 
of the Holy Spirit to interpret the text of Scripture for us. Today's text is no exception. The punchline for today is, blessed are the cheesemakers, is not that, or blessed are the peacemakers from the Sermon on the Mount. Today's punchline is, so is the one who is not rich toward God. As the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, section 10, says unequivocally that the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined can be no other than the Holy Spirit speaking in the scriptures. So the act of interpretation for any Christian community is a Trinitarian one. The Father sent the Son. The Son spoke the parable to the first century Jewish community in Judea, Palestine area. And the Holy Spirit today interprets, thus speaks the parable to us in the 21st century in Nashville, Tennessee. So for the rest of the sermon today, I want to dispel three myths about life that this parable is intending to disprove. Three myths. Myth number one, myth of abundance. Myth number two, myth of permanence. Myth number three, myth of Jesus. All right, don't get to point three yet. You're like, what, myth of Jesus? Yeah, we're going to get there, and you'll see exactly what I mean when we get there. But before that, we want to get to myth number one, myth number two. So abundance, permanence, Jesus. You ready? Okay, let's go. Myth number one, myth of abundance. We see that in verses 15 through 17. As we are going through this series of parables together, I would really like to encourage you to, to take out your phones or your Bibles, okay? If your phone is your Bible, then take that out. If you're actually a printed version, and then let's go along together. Verses 15 through 17, myth of abundance. Let's take a listen to what Jesus is saying here in verse 15. It says, take care, watch out, and be on guard, be on your guard, because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus said this around 30 AD, which is about 2,000 years ago. Life isn't all about abundance of followers. Life isn't all about abundance of likes and retweets. Life isn't all about abundance of abundant harvests, Jesus is saying. It could mean how your portfolio has performed, whether you got the next promotion or not. Jesus here is talking about a neutral good, right? Here the parable is, and the immediate context is, they had a, there is a man who came up to Jesus and said, you know what, could you please help arbitrate between my claim and my brother's claim about the inheritance? And Jesus said, who made me the judge of all things? And we'll look at the kind of pungent irony there that when Jesus is saying that, but we'll get to that in just a minute. Jesus is done, then he says, I will tell you a story. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, he thought to himself, and so on and so forth. So he's talking about a neutral good. No, in fact, true and genuine material good, a great harvest is a good and great thing in and of itself. An improvement of material conditions, possibly contributing to a greater human flourishing. He says, this guy had this great, great harvest. But here Jesus is pointing out the myth of abundance. He says, look, Jesus says life does not consist in verse 15. Life does not consist in, a, in an abundance of earthly possessions. We'll come back to this at the end, but look with me in verse 21. And notice the powerful words of indictment and invitation Jesus presents here. So is the one who is not rich toward God. 
Can you experience abundance of material things and, and be rich toward God? Yes. In fact, that is the case. But was it the case for, of this parable in this, this person's life in this parable? Palpably and most definitely not. Notice with me in verse 17. He thought to himself, what shall I do since I have nowhere to store my crops? He has such a you know, windfall harvest that he says, you know, I don't have enough storage space. So I need to actually do something. He's thinking only about storage and not about sharing, it seems to me. Notice also in verse 18, it says, I'll tear down and build bigger barns. Verse 19, it says, I'll say to my soul, you have ample goods laid up. He's speaking to his soul that what will keep it satisfied is material things and what they can get and what they can buy with it. Myth of abundance. Think about that. I think in, in your life, in my life, let's start with mine. We tend to believe, I tend to believe, having abundant material things will be an overall good rather than overall negative. And there's a lot of truth to that. But Jesus is really getting at something beyond that. What is our ultimate trust and what is my ultimate security? Myth about security, myth about abundance. One of modern-day poets I've come to appreciate a lot is someone named Kendrick Lamar. One of my favorite songs by Mr. Lamar is entitled, How Much a Dollar Cost. It is a long song and describes a confrontation he has had in South Africa with a homeless person. And it's maybe fictional there too, but I'm not sure. But I won't recite the entire song to you, but here are some samples. How much a dollar really costs? The question is detrimental, paralyzing my thoughts. Parasites in my stomach keep me with a gut feeling, you all. Gotta see how I'm chilling once I park this luxury car. A homeless man with a semi-tan complexion asked me for 10 rand, stressing about dry land, deep water, power blues, skies that crack open, a piece of crack that he wanted, I knew that he was smoking. He begged and pleaded, asked me to feed him twice. I didn't believe it, told him beat it. A reason why he was mad at a stranger like I was supposed to save him, like I'm the reason he's homeless and asking me for a favor. He's staring at me. His eyes follow me with no laser. He's staring at me. I notice that his stare is contagious because now I am staring back at him, feeling some type of disrespect if I could throw a bat at him He'd be drained at his neck. I never understood someone begging for goods, asking for handouts, taking it if they could. And if this particular person just had it down pat, staring at me for their longest until he finally asked, have you ever opened up Exodus 14? A humble man is all that we ever need. Tell me how much a dollar cost. So how much a dollar cost? Your soul is worth a dollar and much, much more. And here in this song, what he's kind of describing is this kind of exchange he had with this homeless person who was asking him for a dollar. And then he says, you know, I, I work really hard for my, my, my money, my luxury car. And then the homeless person asks him, hey, have you ever read Exodus 14? Oh, by the way, in case you're wondering about Exodus 14, you know what that is, yes? It is the great story of Exodus. And the Exodus, meaning the entire foundation and edifice of Israel's economy, was based on God's miraculous provision at the Red Sea and in the wilderness, myth of abundance. See, material things are really wonderful, but material things can get in the way of ultimate security. That leads me to my second myth. Myth number two, myth of permanence. We see that in verses 18 and 19. Look with me here. 
And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. I don't know about you, but three things jump at me here. One, it is all about the I. I will do this. I will tear down. I will store. I will store. I will relax. Two, it's all about, all about the future. I will do it. I will tear down. I will build. I will store. I will say. It is as if this rich man, likely because of the windfall he has had with this largest, large harvest, has become certain about the future context. Because of the past, somehow he's convinced that he even has the insight into the future. Third, it is all about control. All about control. He'll tell himself that you can relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Because of this, and he's kind of now, there's a myth about permanence. He believes that because he has such a wonderful harvest, he's going to tear down the old one and build a new one, and he's going to do all of these things. It is about the I. It is about, uh, it is about the future. It is about control. There's a sense of myth of permanence around. Recently, especially since the global pandemic, I have not been to four weddings and a funeral. It's been more like four funerals and one wedding for me. And if the writer of Ecclesiastes is to be trusted, wisdom can be procured far more likely at houses of funeral and mourning than the house of feasting and weddings. Ecclesiastes 7.2 and 7.4, it says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of feasting. I was talking with a dear friend who has lost his wife of almost 50 years recently. And he's beside himself, obviously, and deeply grief-stricken. And he was telling me something that I just took it as a profound statement of truth. He said, my wife was all about giving and being rich toward others and being rich in relationships. So she kind of built her sense of permanence in giving, giving of herself and giving of whatever she has, her time and treasure and talent. And in her giving of herself, he says, I'm going to celebrate that when we have the uh, memorial service or service of celebration come soon. Think about this whole myth of permanence. Are we going to be permanent? I don't know about you, but because of COVID, you know, after COVID, I lost my father-in-law and my father within the last year and a half. And I lost a lot of close ones around me. And I realized, you know, life isn't permanent, right? Life isn't permanent. I'm 56 now, and I realized, you know what? I'm not going to be able to live another 56 years. I have taught for about 23 years, and I don't think I'm going to be teaching for another 20, 23 years. And you might look at me and say, well, you look kind of young. I know you don't think that, but, you know, I don't. But, but as I'm standing here, I'm acutely aware of the fact that I'm actually closer to my retirement than when I first began teaching. I used to really think that I was young. I used to really think that I was strong and agile and all of that, and I realized, you know what? I'm not the same anymore. So there's a myth about permanence. Especially this is a very important advice for people who are 40 and younger. You think that you're going to be permanent. No, you're not. There's a sense about permanence that this young, rich person had. He says, you know what, I'm going to, it's all about the I, it's all about the future, it's all about control. 
There was a person named Augustine of Hippo who was a fourth century Christian from North Africa, modern day Algeria. One of his lasting classics was called City of God. I highly recommend it to you. He wrote it shortly after the so-called eternal and permanent city of God called Rome was sacked by the Vandals and Alaric. He wrote this book in, in the early 5th century to show that it wasn't because Rome had become Christian that the mighty, eternal, permanent city of Rome was attacked, but because its foundation was cracked from its inception. In book 14, chapter 28, he talks about the two cities and two loves. And I think it's very, very important typology for us to think about. And let me quote from Augustine, since I quoted from Kendrick Lamar earlier. I guess some of the young ones and now Augustine for some other people who care about classic texts. All right, so Augustine says, accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the hatred of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, the city of man, in a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. For the one, the city of man seeks glory from men and seeks permanence in self. But the greatest glory of the other city is God, the witness of conscience, and its true permanence only in the Lord. The one lifts up its head in his own glory, the city of man, the other says to its God, Thou art my glory and the lifter of my head. In the one, the city of man, the princes and the nations is subdued are ruled by the love of ruling. In the other, the city of God, the princes and the subjects serve one another in love. Very, very powerful contrast of one that seeks permanence in itself, the other that seeks permanence in God. The myth of permanence here. As I prepared a sermon for the last week and maybe for the last couple of weeks, the phrase that I kept tripping over was this phrase, rich toward God. I asked myself that question, am I rich toward God? And I want to ask you the same question, are you rich toward God? And what does that even mean to be rich toward God? Do we only measure it in material things? No, it's a beginning, but that's not the end. It includes that, but includes much, much more. It's what, so the entire point for Jesus was twofold. Life is not all about abundance of possessions, and those who think that that cannot be rich toward God. If you think that your life is really fundamentally all about material possessions, then it's going to be really, really awfully hard for you to be rich toward God. If you don't remember much of anything else from today's sermon, please remember these three words, rich toward God and meditate on that and really ask yourself that question. What does that mean for me to be rich toward God? That leads me to my third and the final point. I've only spoken for 17 minutes and 15 seconds. That's the record for me, and aren't you all glad? All right, myth number three, myth of Jesus. We see that in verses 21, uh, 20 and 21. So if you were to construct your Christology uh, based on this parable alone, what would that look like? By Christology, I simply mean our understanding of and perspective on Jesus, who he is, what he's saying, and how we can build his identity based on what he said and did. We have a lot of mythical ideas about Jesus among us, right? There are really lots of mythical ideas. Let me share just two. Two mythical ideas about Jesus. Jesus, the Marvel Comics hero for kids and teenagers, Jesus is someone that my kids need to teach them morals about courage and how to stay out and away from all the liberal or conservative agendas that are corrupting our civilizations. Much of that is true and, and commendable, but that can't be 
all there is to Jesus. The other is Jesus, the insurance underwriter for adults. I need the insurance that I will, I will have abundance of materials, so I need Jesus. I need to make sure that I can avoid and dodge, if not all, then at least most of the proverbial bullets of life. So I need Jesus, the insurance underwriter. Again, that can't be all there is to Jesus. Jesus refuses to be tamed. Jesus refuses to be tamed. He'd rather be outrightly denied than domesticated. Friend, do not make Jesus your marble hero or insurance underwriter, insurance salesman, for in so doing, you will witness with your own two eyes the death of a salesman named Jesus. And that's not the kind of tragedy you want to experience in your life. Instead, this parable shows Jesus to be the judge and by extension, the justifier. Let me say that again. This parable, as we look closely, it reveals Jesus to be the ultimate judge and also the justifier. He's telling us to, that, that being, being, uh, not being rich toward God, we're missing the fundamental mark of life. He's judging us in the way that, that is truly painful in the beginning, but ultimately true, liberating, and meaningful. One of, the, one of the things that I've truly enjoyed in my six and a half years here at CPC has been being the teacher of the Gotham program as part of the NIFW, National Institute for Faith and Work. David Filston and I used to teach together, and nowadays it's been me. And one of the things I've begun to really focus on, on in the last couple of years is this acronym that I would really like it if you could remember it. It's PBSW, not PBNJ, but PBSW, Performance-Based Self-Worth. PBSW as in Performance-Based Self-Worth. If you and I base our self-worth on our own performance, as the rich fool did, you will always ultimately lose, although in this life, you may not experience it. Let me say that again. So this parable of the rich fool is applicable to all, but it may not happen to all. Maybe you might say, you know, I'm going to tear down my old barn and build a new one, and I'm going to eat and drink and relax and be merry, and you may be able to finish your life in that way. You may not die that day when you utter these words, as this parable, the punchline is, you die that day, and Jesus says, well, that's going to be what's going to happen to all who are not rich toward God. But I'm here to tell you that that parable is applicable to all, but it may not be existentially true for all. You may say that today, but you will experience life tomorrow or many more morrows thereafter. Then what is Jesus really getting at? What is Jesus really getting at is if this rich fool, as Jesus calls him, based his life and his self-worth was entirely predicated on his performance, his material output in this world. He says, aren't I great? I'm able to do this, and I'm going to tear down and build a new one. And it's really predicated on his performance. My self-worth needs to be increasingly grounded in the fact that Jesus knows me. My self-worth needs to be increasingly grounded in the fact that Jesus not only knows me, but loves me. My self-worth needs to be increasingly grounded in the fact that not only does Jesus know me and love me, but also he alone is the provider of true meaning and worth in my life. Increasingly, that is the case for me. My self-worth comes from Savior's worth. How worthy is my Savior to me is increasingly the ground upon which I am building my self-worth. Truly, I am based upon my performance. 
right? I mean, at Vanderbilt and even at Christ Press, my work, my self-worth is often based upon how I perform as a professor, as a teacher, as a scholar in residence, whatever it is. But I dare not make that the only and the ultimate measure of my self-worth. Because if we do so, and as this young, as rich, this rich person who uh, in this parable ended up dying that day, experience. Otherwise, Jesus is not much more than a marble hero for kids or the insurance salesman for adults. But he is the judge of all. And look at, look at verse uh, 14. Jesus said, man who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you. Well, guess what? Jesus is the judge, but also he's the justifier of all those who are chosen in Christ. Michael Card, one of my favorite musicians of all time, has this beautiful song called Jubilee. He writes, to be so completely guilty and given over to despair, and yet to look into your judge's face and find a savior there. For many American Christians, including you and me, our problem is that we don't see Jesus as the judge. So it's obvious we don't see the face of the Savior or justifier. Friends, let's move beyond the Marvel hero and insurance salesman Christology and move toward the one who has shown us what it means to be truly rich toward God by giving his life for the Father and for his children. Blessed are cheesemakers? No. Blessed are those who are rich toward God? Absolutely. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come to your presence hearing these words about a rich fool in your story, in your parable. The punchline of that parabolic discourse was to remind us that we ought to become rich toward God in the way that we act out our discipleship, in the way that we actually enact what it means to acknowledge the presence of God and the purposes and the power of the Savior and the Redeemer of all things. Lord, when we see the judge's face, we find the Savior there. And as we come to the table, we see that you are judged for our sake. It is the incredible and inexpressible riches of the Savior that brings us to the table, guilt-free and full of joy and inexpressible delight. So as we come to your table, may you feed us with life eternal, as we take part in this morsel of bread and grape juice or wine, may we be lifted up as our hearts will be lifted up to see the heavenlies, to see Jesus who is welcoming us and has prepared a table for us. And as we do so, may we experience what it means to be children of the living God, not a dead God. And it is in your name we prayed. Amen.